Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. This is from Micah 6, 8 through 16. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so you can't just open a day talking about repent of sin as though it's like you're talking about. I don't know, they traded Russell Wilson or whatever. It's not the same thing. It's it's it they're both big deals, just one has like eternal Implications, (laughs) implications, <laughs> and you should know the difference between which one has carries more weight. So anyway, I feel like I was just moving too quick. So thanks for the extra moment to just be present and to honor and revere God and His Word, and certainly to pay honor to you as His followers. So in the eighth century BC, God was busy calling His people to repent of sin. Micah was in the southern kingdom with his contemporary Isaiah. In the northern kingdom, there's Hosea and Amos. And all four prophets are calling the nation of Israel as a whole to repent of grievous sin. They become complicit in oppressing the poor. They were paying off priests and prophets to tell them what they wanted to hear. They were guilty of participating in sex trafficking. They become a violent people. And God takes this very seriously. So he floods Israel with these prophets that call them to repent of sin and to come back into alignment with him and his word and his will. And so God sends these prophets and describes the kind of world that he wants from his people. They are, because of their hard-heartedness, they're going to be carried off into exile, into Babylon. There will be a remnant that's preserved, but nonetheless, there will be justice, there's punishment, there's implications for becoming complicit with the kingdom of darkness. And so God has something to say to his people. 
and he begins to describe the world that he actually wants. So, here's the answer from in Micah chapter 6. Micah began to ask, what will a man give? What does God want from me? Here comes the answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? He has told you, meaning that God has revealed his will. God has not left the human experience up to speculation for us to simply wander in the dark and draw our own convenient conclusions about what we think is moral, just, ethical, right, and true. We must understand and embrace and strive to live consistently and proclaim the truth. And I know that sounds, can sound utterly absurd or archaic or primitive <laughs> to hear your pastor say something about absolute truth. Uh, and I'm okay with sounding absurd and archaic and primitive <laughs> because truth is not bound by time preference, or convenience. And we all know this to be the case. Truth is not partial. Truth cannot be bought. When someone dies and you bury that person, <laughs> no matter how much those left behind grieving wish this were not the case, Truth still stands. It is what it is. That's the harsh reality. And we do live in a day and an age in which, as a society, we thump our chest, look in the mirror, and we praise our enlightened minds. And I'm concerned that in the name of enlightenment, we're continuing to plunge ourselves more and more into darkness. Or to use the language of St. Paul, we're guilty of suppressing the knowledge of God and exchanging the truth for a lie. And make no mistake, when we exchange truth for lies, the result is always the same. It leads to the destruction of ourselves and our neighbors. Brothers and sisters, he has told you, or as Jesus would say, it is written. And if you've spent much time in the Bible, you know it's not a fill-in-the-blank book. <laughs> like a pick-your-own-adventure story. It's not quite like that. In the beginning, God, not Alex. In the beginning, it was God. Almighty, sovereign, perfect. And God made them male and female. In his image, he made them. And God said, if you eat of this tree, you will what? It doesn't say enjoy the fruit. If you eat of this tree, you will die. The wages of sin is not liberation, fun, and self-actualization. The wages of sin is death. See, it's not a fill in the blank. God has told you. And so the way the ancient enemy of God 
launched his campaign against God and creation did not come through the form of force or a threat of violence. No, instead it just began with a simple question. Did God actually say? And in that moment, that is where the serpent gained a foothold on Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so it's critical for those of us who claim to follow Jesus that we handle our minds and our language and truth with the utmost integrity. Dennis Donahue, he was an Irish literary critic. He was the Henry James Chair of English and American Letters at New York University. Listen to what he said in 1976. We often assume that the problem of interpreting words is a matter of knowing what they mean and linking the meanings together in some reasonable order in our minds. But that's not quite the case. The problem is to decide at any moment what our relation to the words should be, even when we know what they mean. The question is, what is my relation to words? Recall the conversation that Jesus had with the lawyer in Luke 10. On one occasion, the expert of the law stood up to test Jesus, asked, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? And Jesus says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Not, can you understand the sentences? How do you read it? What's your relation to this? What's your hermeneutic? How do you read it? God's been clear about his will and his desire and commands of his people. And so the faithful, orthodox, historic position of scripture is where we find ourselves as a church family. We believe that God has spoken his will and it is recorded for us in scripture. And in our post-truth, postmodern society we're consistently hearing words that to be redefined or blurred into meaning either nothing or whatever we want a word to mean and we should not expect good to come from this disillusionment Dysphoria, disorientation around language will not result in truth, clarity, or compassion. Why? Because when we do violence to words, we will do violence to fellow human beings. Think about Hitler's approach to a propaganda. The most incredible act of human violence we've ever witnessed came at the hands of those who did violence first to language. Think about how African-American, African men and women were captured and reduced to becoming three-fifths human. When you change language that empowers the violent, think about what we do to the unborn every day because we will not acknowledge that they have the same right to life inside the womb that we do 
outside of the womb. He has told you. He's told you his will, and he's told you what is good. And then it continues. He, he has told you, O oh man, or literally, O oh mortal. <laughs> Why speak like that? Why remind the people that they're only temporary? Because their pride and their unjust ways of living in luxury had provided this kind of false sense of security for themselves in which they might be inclined to think, I guess I'm just going to get away with this forever and ever. There's no accountability for me. And so Micah warns the people, and the scriptures warn us today, you're mortal. There is an expiration date. None of us like that reality, but that is the reality that we do give an account for how we live our lives. I'm sure you actually have probably heard that old adage that's in antiquity, memento mori, you know, it's, Remember, you're going to die. It was in ancient Judaism, Christianity, philosophers, all basically had this idea that they were to be reminded that you're going to die. It's true. And so Tertullian in the second century, he would talk about how like when conquering warriors would come into town as the, the, the crown would go on to the head of the king, he would have someone standing right behind him whispering, you're going to die. Why that reminder as the crown goes onto the head? Because we can be duped in a moment of success to think this is who I am only now and forever and ever. So to stay acquainted with reality. Read Ecclesiastes. It's good for you. It's not like a motivational pep talk, but it'll keep you, it'll keep you walking the straight and narrow. <laughs> All right. In fact, there's even a app I was looking at this week called We Croak, <laughs> and it will, it will actually remind you five times a day, randomly, like death shows up, randomly, it just shows up and is like, hey, you're going to die, and it reminds you five times a day, and the intent of the designer behind the app is to like create mindfulness and be like, ah, right, <laughs> but the studies are showing it actually started to create incredible amounts of anxiety <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the user. <laughs> Uh, he's told you, O oh man, what's good. And what does the Lord require? Those two words, Lord and require, go hand in hand. And many of us cringe at both of those words because we're all anti-authoritarian, all of us. We don't like the idea of a Lord. God is Savior is fine. That's great. We'll take it when we need it on our last day when he calls us home. Great. I'm down for a Savior. Love and mercy and compassion, great. But having a Lord, that's where we start to bunk back. You can't tell me how to live my life. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. Don't tell me what's true or not true. Don't, you, you don't get to say how I think, God. And God says, no, that's what, exactly what I get to do. As Lord, that's it. What does the, the Lord require? And to have requirements, meaning I have to do something? Yeah. Yeah, God actually has commands for his people. He expects a lifestyle to correspond to the words that we confess every Sunday morning when we say things like, Jesus is Lord. He's like, great, show the world. Show the world. What does the Lord require? So he says, to do justice. All right. Doing justice, according to the Bible, are two big ideas. One, 
wrongdoers are punished. Two, human beings are created to flourish, and it's the community's responsibility to see to that end. So when you read through the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, both of those are twin ideas. Wrongdoing is punished, and widows, and sojourners, and foreigners, and children, and the margins of society that were the easiest to pick on and brutalize and marginalize and leave there. No, no, no. You're supposed to do good to them. Welcome them in with love, grace, mercy, compassion. Feed them, care for them. This is how the Bible talks about justice. It's both. Wrongdoing is punished, and human beings find a place to flourish. This is the world God wants. Richard Mao, a fuller theologian, wrote in his book on uncommon decency, Christian civility in an uncivil world. Great title. To be good citizens, we must learn to move beyond relationships that are based exclusively on familiarity and intimacy. We must learn how to behave among strangers, to treat people with courtesy, not because we know them, but simply because we see them as human beings like ourselves. When we learn the skills of citizenship Aristotle taught, we've begun to flourish in our humanness. That's what biblical justice is supposed to look like. Image bearers looking after one another, making space at the table. So he wants justice. He also says, I want you to love kindness. The idea here is, I want you to love love. It's basically how it reads. This has said, this covenantal love of God. I want you to love, fall in love with the idea of what a world would look like filled with the love of God. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her The Jesus Storybook Bible, <laughs> if you've read it, she has the best definition of covenant love of all Bible scholars possible. This is how it says it over and over again. God's love is the never stopping, never ever giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. That's it. I want you to love this. Or as we've heard read and sang already this morning, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? The truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. This is what God wants from his people. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with God. And that seems almost redundant to say to walk with God. Could there be any other posture? <laughs> For someone like you or me to actually take up a posture of walking with God? Does it actually come with a swagger? <laughs> the one walking with a strut is not the one walking with God. To walk humbly with God means that someone's staying present to who he actually is. Almighty God, Elohim that we were just singing about. Uncreated creator. Eternal God. To have a relationship with him would imply that we understand our own finitude and walk humbly with him. Redemption. What would a community look like if this is what Christians were actually known for here in Seattle? A community of people who respond to the life and death and resurrection 
of Jesus with one aim, to remain faithfully present to this God. What would that say to our city? Oh, those are the people that are all about justice and love, kindness, humility. It's hard to hate on those people. But if you just kind of cruise through Twitter today on evangelicalism as a whole, are any of those things being said about the children of God? No. No. We're often the rude ones, the ones that aren't willing to wait in line. The ones who have this just me first mentality with everything and what the world is dying to see are people gripped by the reality that God emptied himself, became a servant, a slave among men, died on a Roman cross, was buried among the rich and resurrected. They're waiting for us to see that we actually, that story isn't just a story written down in a book, but it's something that moves within us. It's changed us. It's gripped us. That's become the most beautiful thing, the thing I can't look away from anymore. This is what Seattle's dying to see. Not another tweet. Not another posturing. It's dying to see people go, oh, you fell in love with the Son of God because you understand that the Son of God gave his life for you and you live in response to that reality. That's what Seattle's waiting to see. Not you get on the right side of every political argument. God's called us to so much more. Oh, what a beautiful vision God has for his world. And so, because the people remained in their rebellion, this is what the rest of the chapter says, the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and sound wisdom to those who fear your name. Proverbs 1, 7 says, the, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, to fear God's name. And so the idea here is it would only be foolish to proceed in living contrary to this God. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. This rod of discipline is not given to the hands of a prophet or Babylon. It's in God's hands. He appointed it. And so God begins to ask questions. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed. That is God's asking, do you actually expect me to turn a blind eye to the fact that you rob your neighbors and their belongings are collecting dust in your house? You actually, you expect me to do that? I'm light, there's no darkness in me. You, you actually expect me to do that? No. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and a bag of deceitful weights? Do you really expect me to let the guilty just go free? Those who are rigging the, the scales at the fish market and shaking down already poor people? You really expect me to just not care about that? And don't miss that word, acquit. It's a very important word. It's a language of justification, legal, forensic terminology. You see, Paul didn't come up with it. <laughs> it's like really Old Testament stuff too, you know. All right, so your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Theft, deceit in their work, deceitful in their words, filled with violence. This violence includes murder, and it's literally translated here, naked force. 
It reminds you of the kind of stuff that you see over in Genesis 6 at the very beginning, right before the flood, where human beings, Moses writes, would become evil only continually in our thoughts. This depravity that's in us. Therefore, I'll strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. And so he's very clear here. This grievous blow is not unwarranted or arbitrary or out of control temper tantrum. And God is not coming against these people because of race, ethnicity, or their political party. It's not because of a lack of intelligence or strength. It says it here, because of your sins. God is not partial. He cannot be bought or bribed or manipulated. And God does not wink at or laugh at or turn a blind eye towards sin. If you've ever been sinned against grievously, this ought to fill your heart with gratitude. Sin destroys his world. Sin destroys people. And so God is only right to hate it. And the fact that God has such hatred for sin ought to fill us with praise. (laughs) God, I praise you that you're just. God, I praise you that you're consistent. God, I praise you that you're the truth. God, I praise you that you're not asleep at the wheel of your universe. God, I praise you that when I see things that break my heart and watching the news day after day, I'm so thankful that the reality that my heart is broken speaks only to a fraction of what it must feel like to have your heart. God, I praise you. In a world full of disillusionment, you are just and you are true. I praise you for this. I praise you because you always do right. And as unpopular as it is today, the scriptures are undeniably clear on God's wrath towards sin. Jesus died in order to save you from the just wrath that we all deserve. And so to put that idea and that truth on the shelf and water it down and kind of present like kind of a life coach Jesus <laughs> that none of us take seriously does you a disservice and it certainly dishonors God through proclaiming false gospel. So Richard Niebuhr, I'm almost done, theologian in 1934 began talking about liberal theology and this is one more or less quip he had in his book, Kingdom of God in America, said this about liberal theology. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's your liberal theology. A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And brothers and sisters, Pay close attention to the words you hear preached today. If God is not holy, it is a false gospel. If human beings are simply called sinless in and of ourselves through being little philanthropists, that's a false gospel. If the kingdom of God has no judgment, that is a false gospel. 
If there is a Christ and no cross, that is a false gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus said this. And so because we're not cherry-picking Scripture, Paul tells us that we're to proclaim the whole counsel of God's Word. We take it seriously. God's not our buddy. He's not our life coach or a homeboy. God is holy. God is just. And God is serious about the sin that destroys his world and his image bearers. So then Micah begins to wrap up. It says, you shall eat and not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve. What you preserve I'll give to the sword. You'll sow but not reap. You'll tread olives but not have oil. You'll tread out grace but you won't drink wine. What is he just saying? He said, I'm going to take away all your pleasures, all these luxuries that you're finding so much security in. I'm taking them all away. I'm taking them all away. And it's in this refining that God's going to create his people again. That God's discipline for his people is not arbitrary, but there is a point and a purpose to it. To wake us up and to call us back into alignment with himself. For, I've kept this, for you have kept the statues of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their councils. That I may make you a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing, so you'll bear the scorn of my people. So rather than walking in covenant faithfulness and justice and humility with God, they walked in the counsel of their failed idolatrous kings, like Omri and Ahab. You followed these terrible examples, and this is the consequence. There is judgment. There is a reckoning. Love without justice does not win. God wins. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Okay. <laughs> you want to hear some good news? Isaiah, Micah's contemporary, tells the exact same story in Isaiah chapter 51 and chapter 52. What happens right in there? Oh, this you shall bear the scorn? Who's that you? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. This is your Jesus. Here he comes. <laughs> Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations clean. He shall, kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see. And that which they have not heard, they will understand. Who believed what they've heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely... 
Here comes the curse. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. On him, the chastisement was laid on him, and it brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Man. Would you like to hear a couple more verses? All we like sheep have gone astray, and he has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb is led before the slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before his shears, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who had considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So his soul does something when he dies. He shall see his offspring. That's you. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's your Savior. That under the weight of the law, the sin, the curse, all that was coming down on us, Jesus, through his grace, steps in as our substitute, suffers in our place for our sin, and makes us the righteous children of God. That's the truth of the gospel.